So we've been walking through how, how we go about as a church sharing the story that God has been telling through history, especially through Jesus Christ, his son. And we've talked about how we ourselves identify our stories, how we share our stories, how we live our stories. Last week we talked about as a city, how do we uh, be able to engage our city and share the story with the city. And today we're going to talk about how do we engage the nation or, or uh, Samaria and Judea as Jesus talked about it. And uh, first thing I want to point out is this chili supper uh, flyer that you have on your chair. This is about a team that's going up to Muskrat Dam. I believe that the treatment of the First Nations is one of the great national sins that we have with the residential schools. The church is actually implicit in that. And so we actually have an Anglican bishop over all the First Nations that's going to be there to speak with us on the 27th. So I just want to encourage you to come out to that and also support the team that's going up there to help um, be able to share the story there as well. Um, today I have a great pleasure of introducing a friend of mine, Alexander Best, who I got to meet in Toronto as I was a pastor in Toronto. And what was really amazing to me about what Alexander did is somehow he's able to draw churches together. Churches that didn't talk to each other before started becoming friends. And we started working in downtown Toronto as groups of churches collectively. And that was a pretty amazing thing. He started a website called This Toronto. It's got about 12,000 people on it. Just kind of sharing what, what's happening in all the churches across Toronto. And now he's the, the head of, uh, executive director of a, a group called Lasan Movement Canada. So he's looking at things on a national level. So I'd like to welcome up Alexander Best to speak to us today. Thank you, Cyril. It's uh, delightful uh, to be here. I used to live not too far away in, uh, in Milton and uh, have come and worshipped here uh, at least once, I, I'm sure. Um, I, uh, so storytelling. Sometimes it's uh, a good idea to flip to the end. You think you're going to spoil the story, but sometimes we need to think about what the end is, the end in mind, what God's purpose is. So let me share from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. With writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? I wept and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And the living creatures and the elders sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, 
you purchased persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priesthood to serve our God and reign on earth. These words <coughs> cast a long shadow from when they were first spoken 2,000 years ago until the day they are fulfilled. The day every tribe and every language and every people and every nation will proclaim him Lord. We live in the shadow of the valley of death. One death, one cross, one grave, empty. And isn't that how we feel sometimes? Empty. We walk in the shadow, but we do not fear no evil. We feel set upon at work, at school, even at home, even at church. We don't feel like kings. We don't reign over much. Our government, our cities, our universities, our television, our newspapers, our nation has set its face against us. What are we to do? Have we been given a promise we will never see? Have we mislaid the map? Have we forgotten how to get there? To our promised land where we reign? Or perhaps we have misheard the promise. What does it mean to reign? We used to reign, didn't we? We see our scripture chiseled into national monuments, parliament, courthouses. But the statutes that protect orphans before they are born, the old before they are dead, the young before they are prostituted. The statutes are rubble. What happened? Did we perhaps mishear the promise? Did we know what it meant to reign? Did we mistake law for faith, rule for grace, power for peace, servitude for serving? What does it mean to reign? For the kingdom to come, on earth as it is in heaven. You have just been back to the beginning, to Jerusalem. Remember, <clears throat> we remember what, uh, what Jesus was asked, what we asked. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, to Canada? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. The Father has fixed these by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witness, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You were in Jerusalem last week, waiting, being empowered 
ready to reign. What was the sign of that reign? They spoke in every language as if language was nothing. Every tribe, every language, people, and nation. But we get to chapter 5. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. Why were they stuck? Are we stuck in our Jerusalem? Now on those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. The twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and five others. So what happened next? Does Peter stand up in the middle of the temple and give the greatest, longest sermon in the New Testament? Do John and James set out on the road to Samaria and evangelize the great unwashed of Judea? Unwashed. Does that remind you of something? Jesus in the upper room. The table set for dinner. The last dinner. Everyone's hot, sweaty, and smelly especially their feet. There he is. No crown. No royal scepter. His weapons to reign? A bowl and a towel. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? When he had washed their feet, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than the one who sent him. What did Peter say to the church in Jerusalem? It's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Wait on tables. Does that remind you of something? When there was a conflict between the apostles, Jesus gathered them together and said, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must be like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So who gives the great next sermon? It's not Peter. It is Stephen. For he said, I I will wait on tables. And his sermon, the whole of the next chapter, 
is the longest in the whole New Testament. Longer than Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount. The one who served was heard. So who took the gospel out of the city, into the nation, into Judea and Samaria? It was not John. It was Philip. I will wait on tables. Where is John? Where is Peter? Still in Jerusalem. Still waiting. When do they move? Only to follow Philip into Samaria to see what he is doing. So who is the leader now? What did reign, what did reigning look like? A a bowl and a towel. So how do we get out of Jerusalem? How do we take the gospel to Samaria? Cyril mentioned our connection in in, uh, Toronto. As a result of us gathering together and uh, listening to Cyril read uh, Jesus' great prayer for unity and mission in John 17, we went to the university and we said to the student union, you have 15,000 students arriving next week. Would you like some help? You know, these are weird Christians. So we went through, we were around a few circles. And eventually we said, look, you know, we're just going to come. We're just going to help. We'll wear your shirts. We'll do what you want us to do. And uh, if we hadn't been there, it would have been a near disaster. They have 10,000 students coming to the city and parading through the downtown. They close down Bay and Young. They have a huge concert in the middle of the university, and then they bus 5,000 down to a nightclub uh, on the waterfront. And there was, there was 1,000 people gathered ready to get on these buses, and they had broken down, and there was a... And we were there with our bowls, with our towels, a few gummy bears, some water. Now, five years later, they ask us, and they come to us, and, they, and, they, and when we're done, they, they invite us to their dinners that they have for all their student volunteers. And now we have, uh, we have as many volunteers from churches and campus ministries in the downtown as they have from their own uh, student body. I will wait on tables. What does it mean to reign? It means to serve. Now, we must not forget, Stephen and Philip waited on tables, but not silently. They preached to one Ethiopian eunuch, to the whole parliament of Israel. They evangelized in word as well as deed. Now you're feeling uncomfortable. You have tried. You speak, but no one listens. We reign, but now we have no weight. Our testimony counts for little. We keep our head down. 
at school, at work. As for Judea, Hamilton, Samaria, Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver. It's too big, too alien, too foreign. Oakville's strange enough. But Milton, I lived in Milton. The school bus coming down the street. The children getting on. Not one a white face. Children translating for their parents. Supermarkets with aisles for every nation. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. Take Toronto. You have a 911 emergency. They pick up the phone. They cannot understand what you're saying. They have a list of 140, no, 153 translators for 153 languages. Half the population was born outside of the city, outside of the province, outside of the country. Currently, the largest source of migration to uh, Toronto is, is India, followed by the Philippines. Nationally, it is the Philippines. But even a few years ago, in 2013, it was China. Statistics Canada projects that by 2031, almost one half of the population over the age of 15 will be foreign-born or have at least one foreign-born parent. The number of visible minorities will double and make up the majority of the population of the cities of Canada. So when we look out beyond our Jerusalem, uh, what do we see? Manila, Mumbai, Beijing. Canada receives immigrants from 195 countries. We have already got to the ends of the earth. Or rather, the ends of the earth have got to us. I met someone yesterday who was from India, the member of a, and I couldn't pronounce the second part of it, but the first part of it was Syrian. This was a Syrian church that had sent missionaries to India in the first century, Thomas. And in the wave of immigration that's come from India, his community and his tradition, which goes back farther than we do, has just bought two churches from failing mainstream Canadian churches. Two buildings in one year, in either ends of the city, each with a thousand members. And the one that they, the first one that they bought, they now have grown out of. But they have their own Jerusalem. They are focused on themselves and keeping their young in the midst of a foreign culture. Sound familiar? But what if they do not feel so alone, huddled in their 1,000-seat auditorium? What if they knew us? What if we did it together? 
What if we let our Judea be theirs and let their Samaria be ours? Doesn't it take the globe to reach a global city like Toronto? Won't it take the nations to reach a multinational nation like Canada? A couple of weeks ago, I was in New York uh, for a conference about global cities. And it was an American razzle-dazzle. The screen was so big, it actually took up this entire room. But what I most enjoyed and found most stimulating and most inspiring was meeting city leaders from India and from Africa and from China and from the Philippines. They are each leading what Tim Keller called at the conference gospel movements in their global cities. Here's what they told me. Around the world, the church is overcoming internal division and alienation from their host societies by working together to serve their communities, their cities, to which internal and external migration is driving people. They are moving from being excluded to being invited by serving and by being seen to serve and boldly declaring their motivation when asked the reason for their care and their hope, the grace and love they themselves have received. They are, to cite Luzanne's Cape Town commitment, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. That is what our cities need. We understand that Christianity is a global religion. The only one. But the nations are being brought together in global cities. A kind of reverse Babel. We need to think of reaching those cities as a global task. Not just a local one. Can traditional Canadian churches reach the Hindu immigrant community? The Muslim, the unchurched from the Philippines or China. We have churches in each group, some stronger than others, but many struggle. We, uh, we held a forum uh, a week or so ago about cross-cultural church partnership, which was primarily about established Canadian churches helping new immigrant churches or church plants. But a theme emerged, the need for reciprocity, for give and take, for mutuality. Let me suggest two ways this can be accomplished. In Toronto, before I left to go to this conference in New York, a leader of a sending missionary agency that sends missionaries to Latin America told me about a, a gathering he'd had with some other leaders of, of major sending uh, mission organizations. And one of, the, uh, one of them said, we have just undertaken this huge uh, program to recruit new candidates for, for mission overseas. Great effort. Our target was to recruit 
200. We recruited eight. My friend said, do you think maybe we're asking the wrong question? Is it maybe that we are the ones who need to make a Macedonian call? At the conference, I went to a breakout session uh, presented by an organization called African Enterprise, which has, is a kind of, it's the Billy Graham Association of Africa, if you like, run by a very, um, very wise and very uh, interesting man. And he was telling us about their strategy for evangelizing cities. And it basically involved other cities. So they would go into one place and they would meet with the pastors who had gathered together and who had, had invited them to come to help. And they would, they would train them. They would train evangelists. They would analyze the city and every single strata of the city. They would look for the needs that people felt in that city. And they would come up with a strategy and a plan that could be executed by the church in that city. But then they would recruit other people from other cities and evangelists. And they would come and they would, in a concerted effort, they would ensure that every part of the city was touched by the gospel and by the service of kindness and love. At the end of it, he said, if any of you feel a Macedonian call coming on, come and talk to me. Well, I mean, I was there before he put down the mic. We discussed the huge uh, African diaspora in Canada, especially in Montreal and in, and in uh, Toronto, and the need for a coordinated approach such as his to reach not just the diaspora, but the, the whole cities. He said... So when shall we come? I then met with the Indian delegation and had similar conversations. And uh, one Indian uh, leader told me, well, we have uh, specialist evangelists uh, to reach Hindus. So they speak Hindi and they will quote Hindu scriptures, much like Paul did on Mars Hill, and say, this is what your scriptures say, and this is what they point to. And then they tell them the gospel. And I said, that's fantastic. And he said, when can we come? The whole church with the whole gospel to the whole world. That was the covenant uh, that founded the Lausanne movement, uh, organized by Billy Graham and John Stott in 1974 in Lausanne. Switzerland. But now it applies within almost every country, especially a country like Canada. Toronto, the most multinational city in the world, the only true global city. It could be said it will take the globe to reach a global city. Imagine for a moment a concerted evangelistic endeavor spreading across the whole city into all those languages and more, culminating in such a gathering of people reading those words from Revelation. 
singing with that one voice in their own languages and together in the common language of Canada, English. But the nations are not just going to help reaching their diaspora communities here. I think that they can help us reach our own. Our own culture has become, for the church, a foreign country. Our young look like us, sound like us, but they inhabit a thought world alien and resistant to the gospel. Tim Keller closed his address at this conference by saying that there was a fundamental challenge that he doesn't know how to solve. And that is how to reach this rising generation so impervious to the gospel. But I looked out at the audience and I thought to myself, actually, they already have the solution. You see, post-millennialism, the worldview in which we swim, says that, you know, everyone's entitled to an opinion. Every culture should be respected. Gospel music, well, it's black culture. Indian, Chinese, they each have their own valid view of the world. But what happens when the gospel comes from the lips? of someone from China, from Korea, from Africa, from India. Suddenly, there is a common truth expressing itself in these different nations and these different cultures, but a common truth, a universal truth. I think that Canada is more likely to be converted by almost anyone other than me. I am an immigrant, but an English one. When I got back, I, I, I received an email from one of the Indian uh, delegation who I'd met with, and he, and he said, Greetings. Glad to meet you at uh, the conference. Collaborating for GOP Global Mission. I think we can do two things. We can help you minister to Indians in Canada. But could you help us train people to teach English as a foreign language in our countries? Reciprocity. Now, who's the sender and who's the recipient? Who's the missionary and where's the mission field? Canada has a unique opportunity 
to model for the world and the world's church, the kingdom come. How will it come? A bowl and a towel. I will wait on tables. Will you? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you until the end of the age. And at the end of the age, what will be heard? I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And they were saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, he prays honor, glory and power forever and ever. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches. And they cried out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Please pray with me. We are wearing your robes. We have dipped them in your blood. You have made them white as snow. You have made us innocent as doves, though we have been serpents. We are in your upper room. We are at the last dinner. Your bowl your towel. We are washed. We wait on your power. We want to follow you to the ends of the earth and back here where you have brought the nations. Make us a city on a hill, a light of love serving. We will wait on tables just as you wait on us. We come to your table. We see you raise your hands, raised to heaven. You pray for us. You are with us in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, until the ends of the earth, until the end of the age. Amen.